Turn with me again to our Bible reading, to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're looking this evening at the words of verse 14. This famous Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This portion of scripture will be read in literally hundreds and hundreds of carol services over the next few weeks, probably today as well. It's one of the most famous prophetical predictions of the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people uh, term the prophecy of Isaiah as the gospel of Isaiah. And I can understand why, because uh, it prophesies more of Christ, more clearly, more uh, succinctly than any other part of the Old Testament scriptures. And this prophecy we have here in Isaiah 7, 14, as we look at it in its context, it was given at one of the most uh, dark periods of Judah's spiritual history. We, we know from the context that the southern kingdom of Judah, that is the, the two most southern tribes of Israel, Benjamin and Judah, were under the combined threat of the forces from Syria and Israel, Israel being the ten northern tribes. And in the midst of all of this turmoil, God sent them a prophet. And God actually sent the prophet Isaiah to comfort King Ahaz. And this was to encourage him to trust in Jehovah. He wasn't to be looking for outside help. He was just to trust in the Lord Jehovah for his help and from nowhere else. We see that from verse 7 to verse 9. So Isaiah offered to Ahaz the personal opportunity to ask the Lord for a sign of his own choosing to verify the promise. Here is grace, brethren and sisters, to one who was least deserving of it. God was not only offering him encouragement, but God was saying to him, ask me a sign that will verify the, the promise that I'm giving to you. But amazingly, King Ahaz refused the offer. And a show of what we, we know to be false piety, he refused to ask the Lord. We read in verse 12. So what did Isaiah do? Well, Isaiah just dismissed his false pretense of religion, because that's all what you do. If somebody has that false pretense of religion, you cannot do anything else but just ignore it and sidestep it. And instead he gave to Judah, to the believing remnant, the sign of the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. The line of the promised seed that we were looking about over the past few weeks, it was going to be protected politically, militarily. Judah was under threat. And we know that from Judah, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah was going, to, the lion of the tribe of David was going to come. But God was uh, telling the remnant that was in Judah, the promised Messiah is going to come. And he is going to be protected. Ahaz, he was, as the individual, given the opportunity to ask. In verse 11, ask thee. That's the, the second person, singular, plural, singular. And then we have the plural in verse 14. Ask ye. So now God had bypassed the unbelieving Ahaz and he's speaking to the believing remnant in Judah and amongst the Lord's ancient people. 
And this sign was no longer personal. This was for the believing remnant. And we can say tonight it's still for the true spiritual Israel of God. This is a sign that God has given to us. The unbelief of King Ahaz was not going to derail the messianic hope which was so connected with the continuity of the throne of King David which in itself was so connected with the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King David's greater son, Jesus Christ. So it was not the time of the birth that was the important factor here because that would be in God's fullness and in God's perfect time. It was the fact that the birth was predicted and it was certainly going to take place. And what God has predicted in prophecy will take place. It's not encouraging to know. Hundreds of years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, this was all set aside, sealed and done. And we know that those prophecies concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's as if they're already sealed and done. He's coming back, brethren and sisters. As he came the first time, he's coming back the second time. So these ancient enemies of Judah, they couldn't prevent his first advent. And all of the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ that surround the church today, just as Judah was surrounded all of those years ago, militarily by our enemies from the north and from Syria, they couldn't stop the coming of the first event. All of the, the, the forces of Antichrist himself cannot stop the, the second great advent when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again. So in our days of national crisis, in our days of spiritual coldness, in our days of, of a carnal apathy, the truth of the first advent, it just brings as much hope and cheer to us as it did to Judah, the believing remnant there all of those years ago. The sign has been given, the Saviour has come. The promise has been given, the Saviour is coming. That's what we're learning from both these parts. The incarnation is something that marks time forever. The coming of Jesus marked time forever. When, Jesus, when God wanted to change the world, he sent a baby into the world. There, there is nothing like the birth of a baby. I don't know anything that causes such excitement in families and in communities just as the birth of a newborn baby. And the coming of that baby in Bethlehem, it changed everything. It changed history forevermore. And we who live in those post days, we are reminded that our lives were changed because of his coming. This word that we use so much at this time of the year, the incarnation, we know it's, it's not a word, it's not a biblical word per se, taken straight out of the Bible, but it's used to describe one of the greatest events in the Bible. As with so many of our theological words, it's from the Latin. The preposition in, just the same as it is in the English. The, the carnation, that's used, the incarnation. It's from the Latin word for flesh, which is carnus. So the incarnation is the enfleshment. It's the coming of God in human flesh to dwell amongst us. And the staggering claim that we make as the Christian church is simply this, that the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took the form of our human flesh and he came amongst us. That's, that's so staggering. Maybe you've got used to it all after these years, but you ought never get used to it. It's one of the most amazing truths, as we, we thought of last Lord's Day evening, 
in those great words of Charles Wesley, our God contracted to a span in the womb of the Virgin Mary. I want to stop with you tonight at this text, Isaiah seven fourteen, and we're going to look at what the Bible teaches us, what we call the virginal conception. Now, some men say the virgin birth. I think it's more scriptural to talk about the conception of Christ because Jesus was born just the same way as you and I were born. The, the, the most dramatic, traumatic journey all of us made were, were from our mother's womb into this world and Jesus made the same journey. Ah, but he was conceived in a totally different way. And that's what we're going to turn your attention to tonight. Firstly, let's consider the miraculous nature of the incarnation. The biblical data concerning uh, this truth, it's, it's so overwhelming in the Bible. The liberals, the, 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 the deniers of the Bible, they come to it and they try to, as it were, sideswipe it. But you can't do it, men and women, because it's a bedrock of fundamental gospel truth of God's holy word. And yet so many of God's people... I wouldn't know how to defend it and wouldn't know how to proclaim it to others. The virgin birth has been described as one of the great fundamentals of the, the Christian faith. Every elder, every minister in our church at their ordination, uh, they are asked the question, will you maintain at all cost to personal reputation and vain worldly popularity the three fundamentals of the faith as set out by Dr. Henry Cook? We'll learn, a bit, we'll learn more about Henry Cook next year, God willing, in, a, in our upper room lectures. But he set out three great truths. The Trinity, the virgin birth, and the vicarious atonement of Christ, and the necessity of the work of the Spirit to originate faith and repentance in the heart of man. So the bedrock for this doctrine is Isaiah 7 and verse 14. The New Testament Confirmation of all of this is found in Matthew 1. So if you go there, please, with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We have read these passages over the past few weeks, and we have considered them. So now we're going to Matthew 1, verse 22 and verse 23. So remember, this is the angel that appears to uh, Joseph in the dream, and he's assuring Joseph that, that which is born uh, in Mary is conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, and we read in verse 22, Matthew 1, 22, Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Direct quotation from Isaiah seven fourteen, And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is being interpreted as God with us. God with us. Over the years, there's been a lot of unnecessary controversy uh, over the meaning of the word for virgin in Isaiah 7 and verse 14. And there are many higher critics, so-called, who argue that, the, that this word is just of a young woman of marriageable age, not necessarily a virgin. I was first so encouraged uh, of Dr. Mike Barrett's words about this in his wonderful, in his wonderful book uh, from 
from Moses, a, a wonderful book he has of Christ in the Old Testament. So Dr. Barrett, of course, is a professor of Hebrew. And I'm just going to quote you him. He said, I say unequivocally that the word for virgin that Isaiah uses, Alma, is the only word in the Old Testament that without further definition or qualification refers to a virgin in the strictest sense of that term. It is very clear, as he traces all of those references, that it can't mean anything else other than what it does mean in Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Luke does not quote Isaiah, but of course Luke underscores the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. We'll turn you there because it's only Matthew and Luke uh, give us the narratives of the birth of Christ and the miraculous nature of it. So please go to Luke's gospel, chapter 1. Again, we read of this angel, Gabriel, being sent, verse 27, Luke 1, verse 27, to a virgin. Now, <clears throat> the New Testament was translated into the Greek, and the Greek version of the New Testament that Jesus used, the Greek version of the Old Testament that Jesus used, would have been the Septuagint, uh, translated by 70 scholars. And the word that they used here is the same word as used, uh, was used by uh, the prophet Isaiah. To a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Couldn't be any clearer. Now, how was all this miraculous uh, conception going to take place? Mary said to the angel, how can this be, saying, I know not a man, verse 34, 35, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ was the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He took on him human form from Mary, but it was done through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit of God. You can consider the musings of Mary in Luke 2, 19. You can consider the snide intimations in Mark 6 and verse 3. There was something unusual uh, about the birth of Jesus and the parallels there in Matthew 13, verse 55. There was that small, quiet chatter in the background. And we could also consider <coughs> Paul's reference in Galatians 4 and 4. So the unanimous consent of the writers of the Gospels, of the apostolic writers, is that the conception of Jesus occurred out of wedlock. And we're left therefore with the conclusion that the conception of Christ was either virginal or illegitimate. And the Bible teaches us, of course, that it was a virginal conception. It certainly seems probable that Paul knew about this virginal conception. He worked closely with Dr. Luke. It's likely also that John, writing about the, his gospel after Matthew and Luke's account, would have known also about it. We, we looked this morning in the new members class again. John 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Those wonderful verses in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, verse 14. And the Word was manifest in the flesh. 
John continually used that statement, Jesus came from above, that he came from his father. And the way he came into this world was through the virginal conception. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin. And then he went through all the other normal processes of development in the womb. And today, years ago, it would have been unknown, but today you can look at the progression of that little baby in the womb, the embryo growing. It's just an amazing uh, it's just amazing even to see the development of that child. Our Saviour went through all of that development in the womb. No New Testament writer says anything that would contradict Isaiah 7, 14, Matthew, or uh, the Gospel according to St. Luke. So, here we have a bedrock of Scripture, men and women. Don't let anyone ever uh, deter you from it. Stand on it, because your salvation depends on it. The virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. The testimony of the church is equally strong. Down through the centuries, the ancient church has stood for the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. A few years ago, we looked at the Apostles' Creed here in Analog. I, I think you should know the Apostles' Creed. And it says in the Apostles' Creed, He was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That was one of the very first creeds of the church. Conceived by the Holy Ghost. Born of the Virgin Mary. And all of that found its way into all the other great creeds of the church. Right into our own uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. And what does all of that represent? It represents over 2,000 years of teaching of the Christian church. Concerning the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do not allow modernists to undermine your belief and your firm faith in the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, let's consider the mystery of the incarnation then that was made possible by the virginal conception. The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in theology comes under the heading of Christology. And the teaching of scripture concerning the person of Christ it's well defined for us in our own uh, classic statements of faith in the shorter catechism, the larger catechism, and in the Westminster uh, Confession itself. We looked at those words, who is the only Redeemer of God's elect? Shorter catechism, uh, number 21. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be God and man, in two distinct natures, and one person forever. Again, I was blessed through reading Dr. Barrett's book again, Beginning at Moses, concerning these confessional uh, propositions. So what he's just done, I know, he's taken the larger catechism, and he has just divided the, the propositions into the divisions in the larger catechism. And here's what he, he gives us. One, Jesus is God. This is how God, in the second person of the Trinity, came into the world. He's a divine person with all the attributes of essential deity. Jesus is man. He is God and man. He possesses the human nature with all of its essential attributes. We thought this morning, in our opening class this morning, I asked the question, did any other, any other man ever have sinless humanity? No, no, no other man ever had. But that's wrong. And we got to the right answer. Adam did. 
Adam had sinless humanity. Before the fall, his humanity was sinless. And it's amazing to me that the first Adam, the first Adam in the pre-fall condition in the Garden of Eden, he was sinless. Sinless. And he was not born. He was created. He did not come into the world as you and I come into the world. He was created by a direct act, a creative act of Almighty God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, came into the world. How? By a direct creative act of the Spirit of God. And the second Adam, he came to do all that the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam failed to live according to the law of God and thus lost paradise. The second Adam came into the world to live according to the word of God and so open up paradise again for his people and to bring us back to God. He was God, he was man, but a very special man, sinless, perfect man. Three in the one person of Jesus, these two natures of deity and humanity are inseparably united. He was always God and he'll always be man. He's the God man. And so there's a man in heaven tonight and he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Four, the two natures did not combine to deform a, a distinct third nature. In other words, deity was not humanized and his humanity was not deified. Five, the person of Christ was not created by the union of the divine and human natures. The human nature of Christ did not have any independent existence apart from the eternal uh, person of the Son of God. This is a mystery. It is a mystery. The mystery of Jesus' virginal conception was the means whereby God became man and so stepped from eternity into time and became bone of our bone, as the ancient uh, confession teaches us, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And therefore, by the means of the incarnation, God the Son, without ceasing to be the second person of the Holy Trinity, he took into union with his divine nature in that same one divine person of the Son, our human nature. Not a human person, a human nature. And so came to be with us, Emmanuel. Charles Wesley, he, he gave us that great carol. Uh, uh, I don't know why it's not in our hymn book, but it isn't. That earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Amazing words. He led his glory by, he wrapped him in our clay. Unmarked by human eye, the latent Godhead lay. Infant of days he here became and bore the mild Emmanuel name. There will be a lot of jargon talked at Christmas events this year, as there is every year. And there will be more talk, men and women, about Santa Claus than there will be about the Emmanuel who came to be in the flesh with us. Oh, how we marvel at this great event, God manifest in flesh. And that leads us in closing to consider then the message, the message of the incarnation. 
If we could say that's the true message, the true message of Christmas. The mystery of God manifest in the flesh, brought about by the virginal conception of Christ. It ought to grip our hearts throughout the year, not just at Christmas. You know, we can sing any of those great uh, hymns, carols about the birth of Christ. We can sing them in the middle of the summer as in the middle of winter. Because the mystery and the, and the, the glorious message of it, it is sounded out. Without his coming, we would have no message to proclaim here from this pulpit week by week. The most amazing act of God in coming in human flesh happened so that lost sinners could be found and saved. The Apostle John in the introduction to his gospel, he wrote about the eternal word, that is the Logos, becoming incarnate in human flesh. And he said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined, shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And later in, in John's gospel, the direct words of the Lord Jesus are recorded in John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. We're going to miss a whole lot of things. Every year we miss at Christmas somebody who's not with us anymore. I think my generation and so many others are going to miss at least even the tradition after your Christmas dinner of sitting down and listening to the Queen's message. She had some amazing things to say. From this passage here, John 1 and 5, a few years ago in her Christmas message, this is what she said. The message of the incarnation is that Christ, as the light of the world, has come into its spiritual darkness. He came to show us the way, how to find pardon and peace in our hearts before God. He is that way, and through his life, death, and resurrection, there is light now to lead us to God. If he hadn't have come, we still would have been in the darkness. But because he has come, through his coming, through his birth, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, there is light now to show us the way to God. And the way to God this evening is through that precious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1 and 20, uh, we read, But while he thought on anything, that is Joseph, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. That's the message. For he shall save his people from their sins. Did Joseph believe the message that was given to him, that was told to him? Well, he certainly did. How do I know that? Because he named the baby Jesus. This is the angel speaking to him in a dream. This is the message that was given to him. Did he believe it? He absolutely did. Because he named the baby. As he was told to name the baby, he named him Jesus. And I want to ask you at the end of this old year of 2022, have you believed the message of the gospel yet? Have you trusted in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ to save your soul? That's the message you need to believe. 
All the other things are just peripheral. They're just peripheral. The lights, the tinsel, the Christmas trees, the presents, the wrapping paper, the, the big feasting, it's all just peripheral. The major thing, the fundamental thing, the all-important thing, is have you believed the message of the Lord Jesus Christ? He alone can save your soul for God's great eternity. No one else can do it. Only he can do it. And I would urge you to call upon him this Christmas. How do you know? We're thinking this morning. When someone, when a child is born, how do you know that that child is healthy? Every mother will be waiting. Every, all the midwives will be waiting. The doctor will be waiting for what? For that child's first cry. And the first cry of a soul that has been wrought upon by the Spirit of God in regeneration is that cry to heaven. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And unless you've called on the name of the Lord for salvation, the Bible says you're still in the darkness. The light of Jesus hasn't shone in your soul. You're still in the darkness. You still need him. I'm glad he's here. He's here by his spirit and by his power and by his presence. And he said, if you seek me, you'll find me. Here in this little church building, if you seek me, you'll find me. And if you call upon me, I'll hear your prayer and answer your cry tonight. That's the message. That's the message we could say of Christmas. But it's the message of every week of the year. It's the message of the gospel itself. And all because he came into this world via the whim of the Virgin Mary. May the Lord bless his word tonight. Bless you that have heard it. And use it to his own ends and for 